start by saying thank you. It's, it's good to be here at Manhattan Perez. I've, I've longed to be able to worship here with you all and, and perhaps preach here as well um, for uh, many years now. I say many, I guess two or three. Um, but it's a blessing, a blessing to be here. And I will say uh, John's welcome was too kind, too gracious, and, and perhaps not entirely true. Um, but it's a different demeanor than Brian, who took my sermon manuscript and wrote notes in it. Uh, and told you what I sound like from Southern Missouri, yeah. So if you don't know, in Southern Missouri, if any of you are from there, there's a phrase called Ewins, which is, yeah, someone's nodding their head. That's how we say y'all, um, or you all, if you're not from the South, we say Ewins, and it's a real thing. So uh, I'm not going to say it in my sermon because I've, I've been enculturated, I guess you could say. Um, I've learned better, but you're welcome for that. So... Uh, today, this morning, I am preaching from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. This passage of Scripture, it's, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, as I've read through the book of Acts, I, I found this passage to be fascinating. So if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts is kind of the account of the gospel spreading. And it's called the book of Acts because they call it the Acts of the Apostles, that's what they said in the early church. But a, a lot of commentators, a lot of pastors, a lot of theologians will say that really it's, it's the Acts of Jesus Christ in the church uh, during this time that's happening through the lives of the apostles, through their ministry, but it's the Acts of Jesus Christ. And, and this passage in particular is fascinating to me because at the beginning of Acts, in verses 1-8, eight, Jesus gives this command to the disciples, and it's really, I'd say, a, a promise to them. And, and he says this, and this is about the ministry that they are going to be a part of. He says this, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This was the last thing that Jesus spoke to them before he ascended into heaven. And, and it was, a lot of people say it's kind of, if you will, the, the uh, table of contents for the book of Acts where the gospel first begins to spread in Jerusalem, and then it goes to Judea and Samaria, so the larger area of the region, and then it goes from that to the ends of the earth, right? And this passage here is that second step. This is the beginning of the gospel leaving Jerusalem and going into Judea and Samaria. And it's really interesting to see how and why that happens, especially in light of that, that promise that the apostles will be his witnesses, right, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So if you would turn with me to Acts 8, verses 1 through 8, this is the reading of the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of his execution, that's Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did... For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was much joy in that city. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So in this passage, like I said, we're, we're finally seeing phase two uh, of the ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts. And we're at this, this turning point. And, and it's interesting to say that we're entering phase two. We're seeing this turning point. And as we do, um, we're not seeing it because of missionary zeal, per se. We're not seeing it because the apostles said, we've preached the gospel in Jerusalem, and now it's time for us to, to go out into Judea and Samaria. That's not what's happening. Instead, it, it's persecution that's driving the gospel spread. So if you don't know, immediately preceding this passage, you had Stephen, who was considered one of the first deacons of the church. He was a servant of the church, at, at least, and, and he was an evangelist. He preached the gospel, and when he was preaching the gospel, he was murdered. He was stoned. He was the first martyr, the first person to die for their faith. And, and when he, he died, Saul, who will later be known as the Apostle Paul, is there standing in approval of the martyrdom of Stephen. And so that's what you, you see at the beginning of this, right, where it says, and Saul approved of his execution. So Saul is approving of his execution, and immediately he begins to persecute the church. And Christians in Jerusalem begin to flee. And what we have here today is the church going from being ravaged to rejoicing in just a few short verses, right? So that's my goal for us today is to figure out how do we get from, from as Christians, even in the 21st century, being in a place of being ravaged to a, a place of rejoicing. What is it that brings us from, from one point to the other? To where we can say that there is, is much joy in the church. That there is much joy in the, in the church universal, but also here in the church here in Manhattan, Kansas. How can we say that the Lord has brought us to that point where we are rejoicing at the good news of the gospel? And I have two points. And the first is ravaged, and the second is rejoicing. So it's easy, easy enough if you're taking notes, if you have the sermon title in front of you. Ravaged and rejoicing. So ravaged. Let's look at what it looks like to be ravaged here in the text. Here in this passage, it begins with that man, Saul, like I talked about. Later known as Paul. And he's approving of Stephen's execution. And according to that, the verse 1, on that same day of Stephen's execution, persecution breaks out against the Christians. And, and I want to look at three parts of this persecution. The first is that they were scattered. This persecution was so bad that it says that they were, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That should sound familiar to us in light of Christ's promise, right? They're in Jerusalem, persecution breaks out, and it's so bad that they have to flee. And it says that pretty much everyone flees except for the apostles. And it could be that it's actually just the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians that have to flee and the, the Hebrew-speaking Jews because they are kind of blend in a little easier. They're, they're safer. We don't know. But we do know that the church is persecuted and they have to flee. A church where, if you've read the book of Acts, you know what that church looked like. right? It was a church where they had everything in common. A church where they broke bread together. 
a church where they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, a church where they met regularly, they invited each other into one another's house, they loved each other. So there's this church that's rapidly growing, and, and the marks of this church are this beautiful community that's a result of a devotion to the gospel, right? It's, it's a result of the fact that Christ was preached. And you see that in their lives, even when there was heartache, when there was dilemma, when there was grumbling and frustration, because they had that, believe it or not, they came to unity and peace because of Christ. And so they have this, and now persecution breaks out, and they have to run for their lives. And the language here is language of exile. It's language of the Jewish people having to be dispersed, a diaspora. They're, they're, they're fleeing for their lives and they're going out to places that are not their home, right? Going from home to places that are not their home. That's what's happening to them. And this time, instead of the Jewish exile, it's not because of their own sin, but it's because punishment for their faith. So they're scattered. But they're also, this is the second part, grieving. These are people, although it was a large group, who knew and loved one another. And Stephen was someone in their midst that many of them knew. We know that from how it talks about Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He was a man of good rapport. He was a man that, that people looked at and said, this is a man who's godly, a man who's faithful, a man who trusts in the promises of God, and you see it in his life. And now he's dead. Not just dead, but, but murdered for preaching the gospel. And so these people are hurting. And you see that in verse 2, that they're grieving. It says that devout men buried him and made great lamentation. The men who got to bury him were heartbroken. Those are the men who got to bury him. Can you imagine the pain of the lo those that loved him, but instead they had to flee? They didn't get to stay behind in Jerusalem and be a part of burying him and grieving with everyone else. They had no shoulder to cry on. They're just running, running for their lives. And not just that, there's a third part. They're also being destroyed back in Jerusalem. That's what it means when it says ravaged. That they're being destroyed. Paul, Paul Saul is seeking them out. The ones that are still in Jerusalem, he's seeking them out. He, it, he's entering into their homes and he's dragging them out. Right, men and women, which is a big deal if you think about it. He's dragging them out and he's throwing them into prison. We know, you can imagine if you don't know, that having one parent taken out of the home and thrown in prison is difficult for a family. Take both parents out of the home and throw them in prison. What does that do to a family? It destroys it. That's the ravaging that we see here. And why is this happening? Because they loved Jesus. Because they claimed Jesus was their Savior. That he was the Messiah. They clung to that truth. And because they clung to that truth, they were destroyed. Now, what's interesting is that in the midst of all this, people fleeing, people literally entering into this, this new exile, they're hurting, they're grieving, and not just grieving Stephen at this point, but they're also grieving the ones that they know that are back in Jerusalem that are now in prisons. The children that have lost their parents or who are joining their parents in prisons. They're grieving all that. Right? In the midst of all that, 
everything that we read in the rest of Acts 8, even in this passage that I read, but ongoing at the end of chapter 8, is occurring. It's happening at the same time. The church is suffering in one place, and as a result of the church suffering, the church is rejoicing and growing elsewhere. Now, I think there's a, a sense in which we could say that we can't relate to this. And we've asked you the question, are you ravaged? Are you as individuals or as Manhattan Presbyterian Church ravaged? Can you claim that, right? Can you claim that you're scattered, that you're grieving, that you're being destroyed like you see here? Can you relate to them? I want to tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm married to my wife, Madison. Uh, she's here with me today. Don't turn and look at her. It'll embarrass her. You can later, though. Um, but I guess it was eight, nine years ago, we were a part of a, a church that we loved dearly. And perhaps many of you have felt this. Perhaps you're feeling it now. I hope so. But we were a part of this church that we, we loved dearly. We've been a part of many churches that we loved dearly. But, th but this church in particular uh, just had an amazing sense of community, amazing love for one another, amazing love for God, for each other, and for the community around us. And, and, and we were close, very close, to the point of bearing burdens together, being transparent with one another, loving one another deeply, so much so that actually on one of our anniversaries, Madison and I's anniversary, we ended up spending the night on two different double dates. That's how much we love these people. We love them so much that we were willing, it was a, an act of love towards each other to spend time with other people too because they fueled our marriage and our love for one another and our love for Christ. And so we went, we went to dinner with one family and then dessert with another people. And I think one of the families didn't even know it was our anniversary. That's how much we loved them. Uh, it was... It was wonderful. But then I ended up going off to seminary. Well, I say I, we. And so we moved from Kansas City, Missouri to San Diego, California, which was wonderful in one sense. I mean, the weather was amazing. You have the ocean, mountains, desert, right? But in the midst of that, there was a sense of we've left our community behind. We feel lonely. We feel dispersed. We feel far away from those that we love. And there were many times in the midst of that, especially early on, that we thought, you know, maybe we should just move back. Because seminary's good, but there's seminary back home. Um, things are good here, we're growing here, but we miss that community. In my first year of seminary, there's this, this family at our church back home that had this little girl. She was the sweetest little girl. She's the kind of child that when she entered the room, everyone would smile. Everyone, there, you could just feel like the joy in the room rising because she was so full of joy. Beautiful and precious in, in every way. And I remember it was second semester. Uh, I'm pulling an all-nighter. College students, you might, maybe you can relate to that. I've been up all night studying for exams, working on papers, that sort of stuff. And in the early hours of the morning, I get word that this little girl had just died. Suddenly, in the middle of the night. This is a family that we loved, a family that we were close to. And it was hard. I mean, it's hard for them, of course, um, far more than it was hard for us. But, but we felt their pain. And the worst part for us is that we were over a thousand miles away. That we couldn't be there with them. 
to, to grieve. And so we're, we're grieving alone for them and with them, but, but a thousand miles away. And the distance made it hard, and the grief made the pain in our hearts, made it harder, right? Second year of seminary, I, I remember uh, throughout my first few years of seminary, my grandma and my grandpa, they had absolutely nothing to their name, but they, they still sent a little bit of money each month because that's how much they, they supported me and, and this calling that I felt like the Lord had placed on my heart. And they're, they're so sweet to constantly call me and pray for me and write me long notes that I could hardly read because the, the handwriting was almost illegible because of how shaky their hands were. In my second year of seminary, my grandma got very sick. Very sick. And it was fast, too. And she died just a few days later. It was so fast that I didn't have time to go home. All my family is here in the Midwest. And so they could be with her during those final days, those final hours. But I wasn't. The distance made it hard. Right? Grieving made that, that distance even harder. Third year of seminary, the same thing happened with my grandpa. Got sick about the same time of year. Within a few days, he was dead. Again, I didn't get to be there. I missed that part of getting to spend those final moments with him. He's so sick, you can't even talk to him on the phone. And it was heartbreaking. The grief was hard, the distance made it harder. I went to seminary for four years, and my fourth year of seminary, I have a friend from college. I consider him one of my, my closest friends. He's one of the people that really inspired me to take studying the Word of God seriously uh, and, and to love even studying the original languages. And, and Paul is his name. Paul had a stroke, 28 years old, married to another friend of mine, had a son who was two years old and, and a daughter who was in the womb a stroke out of nowhere. We considered going back. Knowing the heartache of the last few years, we considered going back. But, but Paul started to get better. And so we thought, it's October, we can make it till Christmas, we're going home at Christmas, we'll see him then, and then we'll rejoice at what the Lord has done in his life. And then a couple days later, he had another stroke. And I got a phone call from a friend. He was on life support, but he wasn't going to make it. Paul was dead. Again, the distance was hard. The grief was hard. And at that point, we had community in California, but we were feeling that pain of what happens when you feel scattered and you feel like you're grieving and you just can't be there with that community of people who are grieving together and you wish you could. Right? You wish you could be going through that with them. Why do I share that? It's not because I, I want you to feel bad for me, but because I know that none of us, and, and maybe this isn't true of you, but it will be at some point, none of us are strangers to the pain of death. None of us are. All of us have felt it, right? None of us are strangers to that. None of us are, are strangers to the pain of separation or feeling scattered, some of us have really felt that. And you know what I'm talking about. To have to move far away from a community and a home that you love and to have to reset down roots. 
and find a church home and get plugged into that church home. And it takes time for that church home to feel like family, even though it already is supernaturally in Christ. Sometimes it takes time. So you're used to that feeling. You've experienced it before. And if you haven't, you probably will at some point. And none of us are strangers to the pain of feeling like Satan is ravaging our lives. Like things are are falling apart around us. And it hurts. And And I think especially in this day and age, perhaps there's comfort here. I don't know you all. I don't know what COVID has been like for Manhattan Prez. Um, But I can almost guarantee that there was a time where you guys were meeting in person, everyone, and then you were completely scattered. You weren't here. You were on a Zoom call or live streaming or something like that. And even now, you're meeting here in person, but not everyone's here. Some of you that were college students, in school, in person, and then all of a sudden you can't be in your dorm and you have to go home. You have to leave the college ministry that you love or the church that you love and go back. Sure, you're going back home, but it's not the same. I know that. There's been a very real pain that's happened as the church has experienced this, this scattering here in Manhattan, at Oak Hills Presbyterian in Shawnee. We've experienced it too. We're not alone to that. And in the midst of that, There's people who are sick, loved ones that are sick, loved ones, perhaps this is all too real for you, that have died. And in the midst of their sickness or in the midst of their death, you haven't been able to be there. You haven't been able to be with them, to comfort them, to love them, because you can't enter the hospital. Or you, you can't go to where they're at because the state's on a lockdown order or something. And so you have to stay separate. That's painful. To go through that grief and not be there. To go through the, perhaps the last hours of someone's life and not be there with them. And I hurt for you. But what I'm saying is that we are not so far off from what the church is. Sure, we're not being persecuted by Saul. But there is a very real persecution that is happening from Satan to the church. And we're enduring it. Right? And yet... Even in the midst of that, what we see here is that the church, and this can be true of us, it goes from this period of ravaging to that continuing on and yet the church rejoicing. So how do we get from being ravaged to rejoicing? What is the turning point for us? What is the turning point for the church? And I think, I think Luke wants us as much as I think he wants us to experience the pain as we read this, he's a good writer, a good historian. He wants us to experience the pain and the suffering of the church, but he also wants us to turn. And he wants us to realize that at the same time and as a result of it, good things are happening. And I believe good things can happen now as a result of what's happening for us. How this leads to great joy, everything in verses 1 through 3. And you'll see the first word in verse 4, it's a little word. But it's a powerful word that makes that transition for us and tells us that it's something that happens concurrently, right? It's now. You just read this. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
It's like Luke is saying, this bad stuff is happening at this time. It's terrible. But on the other hand, on the other hand, look at what is happening because of this. So rejoicing. First of all, you have talking about Jesus. I also have, I think, three sub-points here as well. I like that organization. Um, Talking about Jesus. This is what's happening in verse 4. It says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And this verse needs to be, I would say it needs to stand alone from verses 5 through 8. And I'll tell you why. If we conflate it with 5 through 8, especially with how it's worded here, then we run the risk of thinking that the word of God spread through people preaching on street corners and proclaiming the gospel, kind of like I'm doing now. But that's not what's happening. Philip was doing that. But what we see here, what they're doing, it wasn't preaching. It was talking. It was sharing. And so several commentaries, they use the word gossiping. They say that these people were, were gossiping about Jesus, not in a bad way, in a good way. Like they just couldn't help it. They couldn't wait to talk more about Jesus because it was the thing that had caught their attention so much. And so these people, they're, they're gossiping the good news of the word. It's men, women, children. All of those who were scattered, that's what it says, went about talking about the word. And that word, word, it's code for Jesus. And that's, we, get, we can see that because in verse, the next verse, it says that Philip proclaimed Christ. Word, Christ, it's the same message. The same idea of hope, of the promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they're talking about it. This is important because it's a great example to us of what it looks like to be so affected by Jesus. That everything that's happening in your life reminds you of the good news that you have in Christ and you can't help sharing it with other people. And I would say that this is what evangelism looks like and should look like. I think oftentimes we think of evangelism as this very specific thing that we have to do. And yet what we see here is these people are so devoted to Jesus, really I'd say they'd be so impacted by Jesus' devotion to them that they can't help talking about it. They're thinking, I'm grieving, but I know Jesus knows my pain. I've lost my home, but I have a heavenly home that I'm on my journey to, right? My friends are hurting, but I know that Christ is with them and loves them. In everything, God's blessing to me in Jesus Christ is better than the treasures here on earth. And it carries me through everything we're going through now. That's what they're thinking, so much so that they cannot stop talking about it. Everything in our lives can and should be for us a jumping off point to tell others, including each other in the church, about the goodness of Jesus Christ for us. And not in this fake, super cheerful way, but in a way that we know what Jesus means to us. And we know the value of Christ. And so we talk about it, like these people are doing. Average, ordinary people. And think about it. It's them. Not necessarily Philip. Not the apostles, but it's these ordinary people that are the ones that bring about the second movement of the church in the book of Acts. They're the ones who are scattered in Judea and Samaria, talking about Jesus, and because of that, they are witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second part is preaching Jesus. 
That's what Philip is doing. And, and not just to Jews, as we've seen at first, because it was primarily to Jews in Jerusalem, but now it's to the Samaritan people. These are people who at one point in time were Jewish, but, but married outside of Israel, worshipped in a different temple, rejected in one sense a lot of the Jewish law, and they detested the Jews because they were detested by the Jews. They were considered unclean, unworthy, not truly God's people. And because of that, they hated the Jewish people as well. And there's this animosity between them. And in the midst of that, Philip is here and he's proclaiming Christ to them. So not only are people telling other people about Jesus in conversation, but then you have Philip standing on a street corner proclaiming Jesus. Perhaps entering into synagogues if they were there and proclaiming Jesus. There's power in sharing the gospel personally. And there's also power in the preached word. And both are important. Some are uniquely called to the latter, but all of us are called to the former. Right? All of us are called to talk about Jesus. And the third point that you see here as far as how this rejoicing comes about is signs. And this is huge. So signs in the book of Acts, they're always accompanied by the preached word. These signs pointed people to the power of the risen Lord. You could have the preaching of the word without signs, but you never had signs and miracles and wonders without the preaching of the word, right? They, they go hand in hand. And what are the signs here? So you have demons crying out in anguish. And why are they crying out? They're crying out because they're, they're being evicted, if you will. And they're crying out. It is so terrible and terrifying. It, it, it's actually the same word for Christ on the cross when he screams out at his death, that agonizing scream, that's what they're experiencing. So you have demons being cast out of people, and then you have people being healed, disabled people, it's those who are blind, mute, whatever other physical abnormality you can imagine, they're being healed. Those who are, are lame and paralyzed, they're made to walk again. So people are experiencing and seeing all this, and they know that because of these things that there's something true to what Philip is preaching. It is unlikely that you or I are going to leave here today, see someone who can't walk, and heal them in the name of Christ. It's very unlikely. I would say it's not going to happen. I can, I can almost guarantee it. But that doesn't mean that we can't go out of our way to be a blessing to those in our lives who least deserve it. To humble ourselves, to sacrifice, to serve others who in our minds don't deserve it. And per, per, I don't know who that might be in your life. But I mean that's, Philip is a, a man who was raised with an animosity towards Samaritans. And here he is healing them and showing them the love of Christ. And while we might not have miracles, because miracles were signs that pointed to the reality, a spiritual reality, what we do have is the ability through our actions and our lives to show people the sacrificial love of Christ indeed. It is not the same of telling them about Jesus, but what it can do is allow people to see the love of Christ so that they're more able to hear the love of Christ. 
which is what miracles were doing then in a very supernatural way. And so we have an opportunity to bless others as well. And to, in doing that, to allow people to experience two things. First of all, there is unity happening here. It says in verse 6, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. So there's this, this unity of the Samaritan people as they listened to Philip preach, as they saw the miracles performed. They were connected. They agreed. They were all listening, eager to hear. There's also a second result. Joy. Verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. What we see here is sinful man being reconciled to a holy God and to one another through Jesus Christ. This is the power of the good news of Jesus. Not just that, but you have a people who, who are ravaged, a people who are scattered, a people who are grieving, a people who are being destroyed, and they find themselves rejoicing too as they take part in others coming to faith. Now you could, you could assume here that the joy is, is only the joy of the Samaritan people. But I think to make that assumption wouldn't be fair. To make that assumption would be to assume that Philip didn't have joy as he saw people putting their trust in Jesus and turning away from their trust of worldly things. Hiding their animosity, not hiding, putting to death their animosity and their frustration at the Jewish people and instead trusting in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. One who they had formerly rejected when him and his followers passed through their town and asked for him to stay a night. And they said no. Why? Because he was heading to Jerusalem. And yet here they are putting that to death and trusting in him. And I can almost guarantee that Philip was rejoicing too. And that all the other believers around as they were scattered and talking about Jesus to these people and saw them putting their faith in Jesus, they rejoiced too. Some of you have experienced being there at that point where someone began to understand the gospel for the first time. Where they began to understand the weight of their sin and the, the beauty of the, not just the holiness of God, but the forgiveness and the mercy of God towards a sinful person like themselves. Some of you can remember that in your own life. When you came to that point of understanding that truth. Whether it was over a period of time or in a moment. But there's nothing like that joy of a new believer as they first understand the freedom of the gospel. And it's contagious. And I guarantee it was contagious here. So how, how do we make this transition? I think actually Saul, later Paul, has good words for us. In 1 Timothy, in his letter to Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, here's a trustworthy saying which deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Saul, later Paul, is remembering who he was as the ravager. 
And I think it would do us well to remember who we were as those who fought against God, as those who hated God, as those who were in their sinful state apart from the good news and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And yet what did Christ endure for us? He took on flesh. He left the heavens, according to Philippians 2. Left the Father, was separated from him. Grieved the death of friends in his life. Grieved betrayal by other friends. And ultimately was destroyed on the cross. But the good news of the gospel is that he rose again and conquered death. And from that we can go from ravaged to rejoicing through Jesus And not just in our own faith, but the faith of others. So, because my encouragement to you is to think about that. And and to think about how you can encourage one another and the community around you through Christ. How you can talk about Jesus in a way that points to his glory, his mercy, his forgiveness, his love, to everything that he has done for you. Because it affects every area of your life. He touches every area of your life so that you can build one another up in Christ and so that you can see more and more people come to rejoice in the good news of the gospel. I want to end by reading the, this last part of that, that passage I read from 1 Timothy because I love the way Paul ends it. He says this, I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beauty of the good news of the gospel. That we who ravaged against you now rejoice and the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, that you humbled yourself, took on flesh, took on the form of a servant, that you grieved so that you could know our grief, that you suffered, and in that you knew our suffering, but you overcome temptation, were perfect, and yet you died. And when things were their bleakest, you rose again, that we might have hope, not just in this life, but in the next life. Lord, would we take that message and will we preach it to ourselves, to one another, and to the world around us. It's in Christ's name that I proclaim, pray all these things. Amen.